good morning, one and all. It's not common for Seventh-day Adventists to meet on the first day of the week in corporate worship, but um, nevertheless, uh, God has called us here to worship, and of course you can worship God. In fact, we should be worshiping God every day, but it's not quite the same as on the Holy Sacred Sabbath day where God has promised very special blessings to his people. Now, I want to pass around these sign-up sheets. Now, I notice that some took a little different approach to the sign-up sheets yesterday and took up a lot of space. It's meant to be one name, one line. Um, and you'll notice it says the name. So I'll send around other ones. Uh, um, and uh, just take up the one line. It's, it's meant for that, the name, the address. Print it. I'm glad to see you did better than some of the ones did out in California. In spite of telling them to print it, they didn't. And it's not easy to read many people's handwriting. I know that because of my own. <laughs> and uh, the city and whatever zip you have and phone number, if, if so called. And uh, that's for our, the, the first page, the blue page, is to be on our free mailing list and uh, give you a better idea of what's happening at Heartland for God's work. But we also want to give you an invitation to sign up for the Sabbath School lesson comments. Um, if any of you are wanting the, these comments, these are comments we put out every quarter, and we've been doing it now for um, about 13 years. And every day there are two or three statements from the Spirit of Prophecy on that lesson. Now, I know that not everyone here deals with the... Uh, the quarterly, and there have been some real good reasons for that. I understand it. But one thing is certain, the, the, the uh, Sabbath School lesson comments are um, a great help to people because, after all, you don't have to put your antenna up when it's the spirit of prophecy, do you? Uh, you know that it is well, God's sacred word. By the way, there's a special... Um, deal there for five quarters instead of four quarters, $18. You'll see the prices on each one of them. And keep in mind that you would not pay for these now. They You'd get a, a bill for them, uh, unlike, you know, purchase of the books on the table here. Then I mentioned yesterday or talked a little about the last generation and, and the, the work it's doing now. Uh, through the Silent Sams. Remember, I was talking about it. Some of you got uh, one of the little leaflets there, putting them in these um, magazine dispensers in prominent places. Thank you, Richard, very much. Prominent places. Now, you'll notice here, you, you sign your name across. By the way, don't use this very top line. You'll find you come to the wrong information. You start at this line. And then you indicate whether you are ordering a power pack, that is 300 magazines, 100 of the Sabbath issue, 100 of the prophecy issue, and 100 
of the State of the, the Dead issue. They're the ones that I think some of you are familiar with, but if you, in case you're not, here is the Sabbath issue. It's, um, and as I've said, of all the issues, I think that's the one that has brought more people into the Seventh-day Adventist Church than all the other issues. But we're getting response, excellent response to the prophetic issue, cracking the prophet's codes. Um, that goes through the, the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and uh, uh, as it affects on receiving the mark, etc. And also, um, it has comparative charts between Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13 and so on. Uh, it's a very helpful issue on the prophecies. And this one, of course, is on the state of the dead. And we've taken it up from voices from the unseen world. We deal a lot with angels because the angel craze is just sweeping across America and probably here too. We've got whole stores that are just given over to selling ceramics of angels, pictures of angels, all sorts of artifacts and so on that are angels. And we know that this is a build-up for Satan when his evil angels come representing God's angels. And, of course, uh, the explanation of the angels of darkness and the angels of light is very clear here. There's an article on, Can the dead speak to us? Spiritism is sweeping the Western world today. And uh, I think it was... Roger and Jean said that they, this has been quite well received in their surgery there in Norwich. People are interested in it. The issue of the, uh, the state of the dead. And uh, after all, that's the final deception of Satan. Just like the Sabbath is the final test of loyalty, the two great issues at the end of time are going to be spiritism and Sunday sacredness or the claims of Sunday sacredness so both of those are there and then of course we're a prophetic people so you get a hundred each of those and they marvelous for just putting into those um, dispensers tremendous I think project and if you all you need to do is put your own tag there address phone, phone number fax number email or whatever you got Far better to put that on than them right back to Heartland. Just put it over the top of the Heartland name here, and and then I'll guarantee you're going to have your time cut out with Bible studies. At least that's what we've found wherever it, the, these dispensers have been, because people will make contacts. They want more for further information or further literature or whatever you want to put on it. Put the name, the address. Telephone number, fax, and email. You've got to put them all today if you've got them all. I mean, people want the easiest way to do it. Um, so, or if you want a regular subscription, you tick the subscription or both because new magazines, of course, come out. Six come out every year. The power pack, tick that or cross it. Or a subscription, cross that when you put your name there. Then, don't forget the Young Disciple magazine. I have, am absolutely convinced that's the finest magazine for young people that there is in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination. 
I don't say that because it comes out of Heartland. I believe that with all my heart. I'm just staggered that our people can continue to accept what is coming off our presses today masquerading as spiritual food for our children and youth. It's disgraceful. We're leading our young people to eternal destruction when God wants us to point them to the heavenly home. So we'll pass those around, look at each page and order what you desire. One on each side. Thank you. Richard. Now, I want to um, say a few things about some of the books here. We haven't said anything yet, but um, interestingly enough, at Heartland, or we were introduced to this book by Brother Anderson, Gordon Anderson. It's a one of the most fantastic books I have ever read in my life. Um, I read it while we were ministering over in the South Pacific. You know, I like to, when I'm going to read an important book, I like to have a good, clear approach to it. And I knew I had enough time while I was there in Fiji, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea to read it through. And it filled in such excellent details in my knowledge. The Reformers and Their Stepchildren um, by Leonard Verduin. Now, Verduin is a Dutchman, a Calvinist. He was chaplain at the University of Chicago when, in the beginning of the 1960s, he was given the opportunity of going across to Europe, coming back to Europe. And he was given a scholarship for a year <coughs> to research the roots of Calvinism. Doesn't sound much of a promising start, does it? <coughs> and one of the agreements he had was that he would give a series of five lectures to the Calvinist Society of Chicago on his return. They could never have been pleased with the lectures. This book arises out of it. He didn't come back with good reports on Calvinism, even though he was a Dutch Reform Calvinist. And he shows why the Protestants, the Evangelical and the Reformed churches have gone into persecution? Why Calvin was a persecutor? Why Zwingli was a persecutor? Why Luther was a persecutor? You know, we can talk about the Roman Catholics being persecutors and they've been par excellence. But those traditions of Protestantism, and you could, could have added, though he doesn't deal with it, the Anglican Church has been a persecuting church. Every reform, major reform church fell into that direction. And Luther, for example, was indirectly or even directly responsible for thousands of Anabaptists going to the stake. Dreadful. It happened that suddenly... 
Emperor Charles V woke up to the fact that Luther despised the Anabaptists just as much as the Catholics did. And that was his moment to put in laws that anyone that would not have their infants baptized would be burned at the stake. Now, of course, Germany soon got divided up between Protestant states and Catholic states because the princes or the dukes or whatever were running them were either Protestant or Catholic. Now, that was a dreadful situation. I think of what's happening in Ireland now because you had, if you were a Protestant in a Catholic state, you had no protection whatsoever. And if you were a Catholic in a Protestant state, you had no protection. And so untold thousands of people were uprooted and uh, were sent. And they had to move. Protestants had to move from these Catholic states where their life was in danger. They might have had hundreds and hundreds of years of family tradition right where they were, but they had to leave it all and go to the Protestant state for protection. And Roman Catholics had to do the same in Germany. That was dreadful. But vastly worse than that was the situation of the Anabaptists. They had nowhere to go. They were despised by the Lutherans. They were despised by the Catholics. They were persecuted by the Lutherans. They were persecuted by the Catholics. And many of these godly people lost their lives because of it. Listen, he comes out so strongly for the Anabaptists in this book. That's why it's been the Mennonite or one Mennonite company that's reprinted it. You can understand why. Now, by the way, Verdun is still alive. At least he was still alive in November. 101 years of age, living in Florida. I just wished I'd had time to go and visit him. I'd like to meet this man. This man. Now, don't be put aside by what he has done. You look at the chapters and there's enough to scare a brave man. Because all he does is use the names, the sarcastic and derisive names used against the Anabaptists because they're all big jaw, German jawbreakers and so on. Sacramentoschramawama or something or other. And I, I never did get to understand how to pronounce all these words in here. But I tell you, don't put, be put off by that. This is a classic that if you're really riveted on Reformation history and understanding how persecution developed, he gives a clear picture of how uh, Constantinianism and Augustinianism led to all this problem. Of course, Luther was an Augustinian monk. I don't think that there's hardly anything bad that's in Christianity today that I can't trace back to Augustine. That's how bad he was. Yet he's considered one of the greatest so-called church preachers. Does that conflict with what Sister White says about Luther? No, it doesn't conflict with it. He's not he, he writes in a very kindly way. He's not, he's not the militant type. He's an academic, you see, but... But uh, And he's not suggesting they didn't do a lot, but he said in this area they followed the same pathway as Augustine. And we've got to acknowledge it. That's the facts of history. The next one. I bought a, quite a few of these. I, I just hope that there were some British that were interested 
in this book if they have not already. We've just republished it, A History of the Gunpowder Plot. And you know what that's dealing with, the Roman Catholic intrigue and conniving that led to Guy Fawkes' attempt to destroy the House of Commons or the House of Parliament there. And um, this goes into detail, the Roman Catholic plotting and planning. And um, if anyone was the fall guy in that, it was Guy Fawkes because he was hanged for it, as you know. But um, this was not just some isolated case. This was a plot by the Catholics here in Great Britain. The history of the gunpowder plot. And you might say this won't interest Britons. I hope it does. I don't know how many of you realize what a tremendous impact the Reformation made on Spain. It was eventually virtually extinguished by the Inquisitions, the fearful Inquisitions. But you know, an excellent Spanish translation of the Bible was put out. And uh, just like the King James from the received text, from the Eastern Syriac text, and McCree is the, the authority on that Reformation in Spain. It's a sad history. It's a noble history. It's a brave and courageous history. Many Spanish Protestants were just put to the stake. So we bought that over here. These are books that we're putting out. You know, that's been a, just the most wonderful thing to get our uh, nose into the Protestant bookstores here in England, Australia, and especially in the United States. Yes. Sorry. I think so. He wrote a number of the reformational histories. And uh, he was a, a, a true believer in the Reformation. So you may be interested in those there. And um, they're over here. Keep in mind that the books on this side of the kind of the almost clear space there in the middle are the books that are being sold by Gaisley and they should be paid for with the Gaisley people. If you purchase books up here, they should be paid. Uh, they're the Heartland books and so we've got to keep the account separate on those. This morning, open your Bibles um, with me. <coughs> to the 16th chapter of John. I'm going to be reading a passage from the first verse. John 16 and verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. So what's going to happen now? We're not to be offended? We're not to be filled with fear or anxiety. Remember, God is with us through our darkest days of test, just as he is in the times of our sunniest prosperity. Then he says, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Today he'd say, out of the churches. Now, obviously, this is Christian persecution on Christian. 
they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. I don't have to tell you that burning people at the stake was considered the highest good by the Roman Catholic Church. The most honorable act that they could do in honoring God. Can you imagine such twisted and warped minds? But that's what they believed. And I don't doubt that that can ha come into the minds of some Seventh-day Adventists that turn away from the truth of God. Verse 3. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. Or oh, they claim him, but they've not known them. If you knew God the Father, if you knew Jesus, you'd persecute nobody. Even those that had the most um, difficult religion to even consider. Verse 4, But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them, and these things I said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. He said, I'm about to leave you now and I'm now going to warn you what's going to happen when I leave you. Now, of course, the history of Christianity is stained with the fulfillment of this prophecy. But in a very special way, at the end of this world's history, this will be repeated in a way that even the Middle Ages will seem to have been less than severe in comparison. Brethren and sisters, Jesus has warned us so that we're not in darkness what is going to happen. And that is to warn us to be ready and to be able to handle those situations when they, they come. Now, this morning I'm going to look in the first session at the difficulties that the American legislature and judiciary had of really living by the First Amendment during the 19th century. It's a fascinating situation. It's an interesting thing. After all, the First Amendment was so clear, so plain, but something came in or stayed in that was in conflict with it. Would you believe what the conflict, where the conflict came from? Great Britain. You would have thought they'd thrown off everything that belonged to Great Britain, but oh no. You see, in the colonies, the colonies were run by British common law. And that remained with the, the states as they were formed. Now, British common law was built upon biblical morality. That sounds good, doesn't it? In the 18th century, Sir Matthew Hale said, Christianity is part of the laws of England. A little later, in 1767, Lord Mansfield qualified slightly by saying, the essential principles of revealed religion are part of the common law. And in reality, it focused upon the Ten Commandments. Not the last six. Remember what we said yesterday about the first four 
and the last six. Government has a responsibility in terms of the last six, at least the last five. That's made plain by Paul, but has no mandate in terms of those responsibilities to God. But English common law did not make that distinction. Therefore, there were blasphemies laws against which commandment? The third commandment. There were Sabbath laws. Not true Sabbath laws, but Sabbath laws. And just like we found in Virginia, they were fining people for not attending church. There were laws against idol worship. Now, I don't... All of these things are terrible things. You wouldn't have wanted to be a Hindu living in England in those days or a Buddhist. Wouldn't have gone over too well. And this common law came, flowed into America and now you had the common law that did not separate church and state still on the statute books of the new states of America but they also had the First Amendment. A total contradiction. Incompatible one with the other. And all last century and I would dare say it's happening again. There is that battle between whether they're going to stand by the First Amendment or they're going to yield to the common law concepts that came out of Great Britain. The first big confrontation came in 1810. Congress, the 11th Congress made a law in, in 1910 that uh, absolutely enraged certain Christians in America. This is what the law said, that every postmaster shall keep an office in which one or more persons shall attend on every day on which a mail or bag or other packet or parcel or letters shall arrive by land or water, as well as on other days, at such hours as the postmaster general shall direct, for the purpose of performing the duties thereof, and it shall be the duty of the postmaster at all reasonable hours on every day of the week." to deliver on demand any letter, paper, or packet to the person entitled to or authorized to receive the same. That law was enacted April 30, 1810. It didn't take long for the reaction. It started with the Presbyterians near Pittsburgh. And they started making their efforts to turn Congress around and stop demanding that mail be delivered seven days a week. By the way, the law went much further and that said the mail coaches had to travel seven days a week. 
You know, in those days, there were just the coaches taking the mail. Of course, they took passengers as well. And they were required to travel seven days a week. Non-stop. Didn't mean the same drivers. That had to be there. And didn't mean that the same horses were moving seven days a week, 24 hours. But as you know, they had all those staging areas where they changed horses and they changed uh, drivers and so on. And uh, they objected to the desecration, the forced congressional desecration of the Lord's Day. Well, would you believe that this battle continued for 20 long years. Petition after petitions coming, increasingly, Congress, lawyers looking at the matter, trying to decide what to do, but Congress never changed the law. Eventually, it took one of the most powerful senators of the day to settle the issue. Senator Richard Johnson from Kentucky. He later became a vice president of the United States, so you can understand he was quite a prominent senator at the time. And in 1929 and 1930, he went to the House and the Senate and in emphatic words told why Congress would not revoke this law. It's interesting to read some of the statements that he made. By the way, some have been asking about this book on on religious liberty. I've just got some of the chapters here that I'm referring to in manuscript form. Let me tell you where it's at. It's now at the point of... um, It's been desktop published and the cover's ready and so on. It's ready to go to press. Um, And this is the book that I want to go to every legislator in America. And I estimate that um, the number of legislators in the 50 state houses is about... um, What were we estimating this morning when we were talking about, Roger? About 8,000. But I believe it's that important. And by the way, I'd like to get it to some of the... Um, judiciary leaders in the nation, at least Supreme Court justices and some of the federal judges, at least at those levels. And of course, you know, if we had unlimited funds, we'd also want to get into the libraries because that's that's an open area and there's so much work being done on religious liberty in America today and of course now you can go to a library and ask them to throw up on the screen or you can throw it up yourself what books there are and uh, they're looking for these new books that have been written on the area of religious liberty so there's so many things that you'd like to do if if the Lord opened the the storehouse to do it because I think we've got to get down I'd like to get to the leader of Catholics and Protestants, I mean evangelicals and Catholics together and and so on, these people, because they need to understand that there is a religious liberty they've got to keep in mind. But um, coming to some of the statements of Senator Johnson, 
He says it is not the legitimate province of the legislature to determine what religion is true or what religion is false. In other words, he was going back to the First Amendment. It's not our responsibility. We don't have that mandate because of the First Amendment to decide what is a true religion and what is a false religion. And then he said the Jews who in this country are as free as Christians and entitled to the same protection from the laws derive their obligation to keep the Sabbath day from the fourth commandment of their Decalogue and in conformity with the injunction pay religious homage to the seventh day of the week which we call Saturday. In other words, he said, if we make a law that, uh, that Sunday should be uh, free of mail deliveries, we're taking sides in the religious debate. There are people that keep Saturday. By the way, elsewhere, he talks about um, other Christians that keep the first day of the week, uh, the seventh day of the week. Who was he talking about? Um, oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 18, 1830, Seventh day Baptist. Can't be Seventh-day Adventist in 1830. They didn't exist. <clears throat> and he's saying, what right have we to make a law which would serve the religious? Now, you know, and, and watch, it's happening again today. It's an amazing thing. When, in the early days of this dialogue or this debate, they... Were told, listen, we, they were giving all religious reasons for stopping mail service on the first day of the week. And some of the congressmen said, look, the First Amendment tells us we can't operate in that sphere. They were, many of them, of course, had been well and truly around when 19 years before the Bill of Rights had been passed. So they understood it well. They'd heard the arguments. They understood the real situation. That's why it took this common law problem till the middle of the century to really hit the, the ropes because a new generation had arisen that hadn't heard the arguments firsthand about why the First Amendment had been enacted. And so they went undercover. And they started coming out with arguments that were secular of why Sunday should not be a mail delivery day. And they said, people need one day to rest and to cease from their work. But you know, those early congressmen who knew what the First Amendment meant and they were riveted on supporting it, they said, you may say it in secular terms, but we know there's an underlying religious reason and therefore we cannot change the act. They were wise. And at this time there was no persecution on this issue. And eventually at the insistence of Johnson it was stopped. Both Senate and House said they would not consider it anymore 20 years later. Alright. That's where it started. But once we get around the middle of the 19th century the state houses were starting to look at Sunday laws. Or they were coming to cases. 
For example, a California case where a man, a Jew, <coughs> had sold some produce on the first day of the week. And um, the buyer never did pay. So the seller sued for payment. And it was first argued that he didn't know it because it was an illegal transaction because it had been contracted on the Lord's Day. Fortunately, the California legislature eventually said, no, it must be paid. By the 1870s, around 1880, every single state of the Union had a Sunday law. <coughs> now remember, there were still a few that were not yet established. They were still territories like um, Washington Territory and so on. But of those that were states, everyone except California, Arizona and Idaho, three western states, all the other states had Sunday laws. The 1880 was a dreadful time. <coughs> and many Seventh-day Adventists were caught up in the trap. And some were imprisoned. Now A.T. Jones at this time was strongly advocating that Seventh-day Adventists openly work on Sunday because he took the commandment, six days shalt thou labor. <coughs> and many followed him, and especially in the South, always persecution has been stronger in the South than in the North or the West. Many of our believers went to jail. I'm going to read you about some cases in a moment. But Sister White gave a different counsel. Anyone remember what her counsel was? I've often wondered why we have to wait for persecution or Sunday laws to use Sunday as a missionary day. Couldn't we use the Sunday today in this day and age as a missionary day? <coughs> but remember this there are two steps to the Sunday laws the first one is you can't do servile work on Sunday that's the first step what's the second step the violation of Sabbath sacredness and I want to tell you if you even do a little bit compromise there you've lost eternity and that's why the Sabbath reform is so important. I wish I was here long enough to preach what I preached last weekend down the, uh, over there in Rivers, in uh, San Bernardino on Sabbath reform. I tell you, hardly a person was not absolutely staggered at how far short they were of keeping the Sabbath. And I'll guarantee if I preached it here, I'd find the same reaction. We think we know how to keep the Sabbath. Brethren, sisters, most of us, if we really knew it, 
our Sabbath violators, most of us. There was tremendous shock that went around when I read signs of the times, I forget the date now, that men are to shave before the hours of the Sabbath. Hardly a man that spoke to me had ever heard about that. By the way, if anyone wants to see, I don't have it here, but I have it back in my room and I'll be willing to share it with you. If you want to grow up, I mean, that's why I always shave Friday afternoon. I get a little beardy by Saturday night. Some of you may have noticed it, but I'd rather follow God's law than worry about that. God's commandments. Many, even of our people, have uh, do not today take serious, give all the reasons why we don't have to worry about Sister White saying the baths should be taken before the setting of the sun. Many of the people that come to our meetings, or they say, well, you know, in those days you had to light fires and you had to bucket it in. Yes, we did that when I was a boy. We filled up the copper with water and we put the wood underneath and we got it burning and then we pulled out the bucket of boiling water. You had to be careful, of course, and put it in the tub. And that had to be for all four members of the family, four members that we had at that time, but I want to tell you, when I went to Avondale College in 1950, that's when they still believed the Advent message. I'm not talking about Avondale College in 1998. The showers, and they had the regular showers just to turn on. You got your hot and cold water. But they were turned off half an hour before the setting of the sun. Every Friday evening, it was well after sundown Sabbath that they were turned back on again. So you made sure you got your shower in time. They, it wasn't just a minute or two, it was half an hour before. They wanted to be sure not only you got bathed, you had time to get dressed and ready for Vespers and Sabbath, opening of Sabbath and so on. Brethren and sisters, we've forgotten that there are explicit statements on these. Well, I'm not here to preach on that actually, but... Um, I just want to uh, mention that in terms of the Sabbath situation. Now, the case that I'm going to take up and read to you, or part of the transcript, is that of... Not the wrong one. Um, here we are. Of what happened in the state of Arkansas. In 1885, Arkansas had enacted a very stiff Sunday law. And that law had given fines for anybody who did servile work on Sunday and in lieu of fines, a jail sentence, if people could not afford the fines. Now what I'm going to read is from 
the transcript of the speech made by Senator Robert Crockett. Remember I mentioned that he was the grandson of Davy Crockett, the American frontier man. In the State House, he was a state senator pleading for a reversal of this law. He first started off in his speech of talking about what a wonderful state Arkansas was. He believed it was paradise to listen to what he had to say. And there are many nice places in Arkansas. But it's also one of the poorest states in America. In some areas it's number 50. In most areas it's lower than 45. So it's one of the very poor states of America. But nevertheless, there are some beautiful spots in Arkansas. And he had been obviously very instrumental in trying to get people to come from the east and so on and, and uh, settle in this part of the land. And he'd been up into the northwestern part of Arkansas trying to get that settled. And he talks all about that. Then he starts to come to his point. Many came and settled up our wild lands and prairies. And where but a few years ago we heard in the stillness of the night the howl of the wolf, the scream of the panther, and the wail of the wildcat, these people for whom I am pleading came and settled. Instead of the savage sounds incident to the wilderness, now are heard the tap, tap, tap of the mechanic's hammer, the rattle and roar of the railroad, the busy hum of industry, and softer, Sweeter far than all these is heard the music of the church bells as they ring in silvery chimes across the prairies and valleys and are echoed back from the hillsides throughout the borders of our whole state. He was quite an orator. You can tell by the language that he uses here. So, uh, any English teacher would um, be happy with this kind of presentation. I don't think the environmentalists would have been as keen about it once we heard the panthers and the wildcats and the wolves, but now the tap, tap, tap of the hammer and the roar and so on of the railroads. I don't think that fits the environmentalist agenda, but it certainly would have fit the thinking of that day. And then he says, these people are many of them Seventh-day Adventists and Seventh-day Baptists. They are people who religiously and conscientiously keep Saturday, the seventh day, as the Sabbath in accordance with the Fourth Commandment. Now, I want you to hear what else he says. Why he didn't become a Seventh-day Adventist, I don't know. I wish I'd always presented the Sabbath as well as this man presented, and here he was, a Sunday keeper. They find no authority in the scripture for keeping Sunday, the first day of the week, nor can anyone else. All commentators agree that Saturday is and was a scriptural Sabbath and that the keeping of Sunday, the first day of the week, as a Sabbath is of human origin and not of divine injunction. The Catholic writers and all theologians agree in this. Imagine saying that in the state house. These people understand the Decalogue to be fully as binding upon them today as when handed down amid the thunders of Sinai. 
They do not feel at liberty to abstain from their usual avocation because they read the commandment, six days shalt thou labor, as mandatory, and they believe that they have no more right to abstain from labor on the first day of the week than they have to neglect the observance of Saturday as their Sabbath. He'd been influenced by A.T. Jones, that's almost certain. He uses the same arguments. Now he made a, a mistake in his next part, uh, next sentence. They agree with their Christian brethren on other denominations in all essential points of doctrine. The one great difference being upon the day to be kept as a Sabbath. Well, you know, there's a few things that we disagree with our other Christians. Uh, State of the dead would be one, wouldn't it? Sanctuary message would be another and many aspects usually about the millennium and the return of Jesus, etc. But that's how he said it. They, they follow no avocation tending to demoralize the community in which they live. They come among us expecting the same protection in the exercise of their religious faith as is accorded to them in the states of Europe, in South Africa, Australia, the Sandwich Islands, that's of course the Hawaiian Islands, and every state of the Union except, alas, that I should say it, Arkansas. Sir, under the existing law, there have been in Arkansas within the last two years three times as many cases of persecution for conscience sake as there have been in all the other states combined since the adoption of our national constitution. So it had become a center for persecution. Let me, sir, illustrate the operation of the present law by one or two examples. A Mr. Swearingen by the way, when I read this up in a little village, much smaller than Gaisley, in Washington State called Marcus, but we had 140 people there nevertheless. After the meeting, a younger woman came to me so excited. She said, my maiden name was Swearington. I had never known that any Seventh-day Adventist held that name beside the few members of our family because it's a Scandinavian name. And, um, but here when I read that name, she, she couldn't wait to come and talk to me about it. A Mr. Swearingen came from a northern state and settled a farm in Benton County. His farm was four miles from town and far away from any house of religious worship. He was a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and after having sacredly observed the Sabbath of his people Saturday by abstaining from all secular work, he and his son, a lad of 17, on the first day of the week went quietly about their usual avocations. They disturbed no one, interfered with the rights of no one, but they were observed and reported to the grand jury, indicted, arrested, tried, convicted, fined, and having no money to pay the fine, these moral Christian citizens of Arkansas were dragged to the county jail 
and imprisoned like felons for 25 days. And for what? For daring in this so-called land of liberty in the year of our Lord, 1887, to worship God. I'd like a defender, a human defender like that if I were in trouble on this, wouldn't you? Was this the end of the story? Alas, no, sir. They were turned out, and the old man's only horse, his sole reliance to make bread for his children, was levied on to pay the fine and costs, amounting to $38. The horse sold at auction for $27. A few days afterwards, the sheriff came again and demanded $36. $11 balance due on fine and $25 for board for himself and his son while in jail. They were pretty severe, weren't they? Now think of that in the currency of the day, not what a few dollars means to us today. This was heavy money. And when the poor old man, a Christian, mind you, told him with tears that he had no money, he promptly levied on his only cow, but was persuaded to accept bond and the amount was paid by contributions from his friends of the same faith. Sir, my heart swells to bursting with indignation as I repeat to you this infamous story. This man was very convicted, this senator. <coughs> And then he concluded his plea this way. On next Monday, at Malvern, six as honest, good, and virtuous citizens as live in Arkansas are to be tried as criminals for daring to worship God in accordance with the dictates of their own consciences, for exercising a right which this government, under the Constitution, has no power to abridge. Sir, I plead... In the name of justice, in the name of our Republican institutions, in the name of these inoffensive, God-fearing, God-serving people, our fellow citizens, and last, sir, in the name of Arkansas, I plead that this bill may pass, that was a bill to override the previous legislation, and this one foul blot be wiped from the books of our glorious commonwealth. By God's grace, his plea prevailed. And the Senate voted to take this provision away. We may not have someone standing like that for us when our turn comes. But praise the Lord. Now... By the way, this all came from a book written by a New York lawyer, Blakely, William Blakely. I'm sorry, William Adderley. And um, he put this book out. It wasn't really a book. It was basically all, it was called um, Papers... Uh, dealing with Sunday legislation in the 19th century. He put it out in 1891, before the end of the century. He wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. But it's a thick book like this.
been marvelous to get a photostat copy of it. There's a lot of wonderful information that we are able to glean for this book on religious liberty. And some of it refers, of course, to th things that we've been talking about. We've only touched the tip of the iceberg in this series. You can understand why. And Blakely, uh, and, uh, and Adderley gives an account of others who suffered. He gave a case in, uh, cases in Tennessee, Georgia, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and he pointed out that one of the Seventh-day Seventh Adventists that had been jailed in Georgia died from disease that he contracted in the prison. You know, serious things happen in the past, and they will in the future. Oh, by the way, I did tell you that I'd give you a little bit of a, an idea of what Senator um, Henry... Oh, dear, isn't that amazing how names... About uh, Blair, yes, Senator Henry Blair. The ideas that he had. Here is a short excerpt from a long letter he wrote to the New York Mail and Express, April 19, 1890. Now remember, Senator Blair was the man who tried to get the National Sunday Laws into America toward the end of last century, and he was the one that A.T. Jones so courageously and effectively stood against in the Senate subcommittee, in the Senate hearings. And in the end, the simple, clear, logical arguments of Jones pertained, and that Senate ruled in favor of the concepts of Jones rather than in the concepts of um, Blair. There was another case of one man making a difference. Remember some of the things that we talked about yesterday, of one man making a difference. All right. This is an ex excerpt from his letter. I do not believe that it is possible that the American nation will develop in the direction of toleration of all religions. That is, so-called religions. Whether the general public conviction shall be right or wrong, I yet believe that instead of selecting and finally tolerating all so-called religions, the American people will, by constant and irresistible pressure, glad, gr gradually expel from our geographical boundaries every religion except the Christian in its valid forms. That's a pretty... Serious statement. That would be the end of the Muslims and the Hindus and the Shintoists and the the Taoists uh, and so on that are in in America today. Now, of course, I've got no truck for the Muslims or the others, but nevertheless, they do have a right to peaceably prosecute their their religion and share it. If Christians don't have enough security and knowledge and faith in their religion, they're not going to be saved anyway. Well, this doesn't say just a Christian religion. It's a Christian in its valid forms. I wonder what he meant. Mainstream religions, I'm sure. 
And if that had passed then, and I believe it would have passed if God's people had been ready. That's what stopped it. Because they'd rejected the 1888 message. That was a problem. They're the serious situations that, um, that we confront. Well, there's so much I could say, but perhaps I will stop there because it's, I've got a little longer presentation for the final presentation. Very important. But listen, after you finish, I want to say a little bit more about the books and that so you'll be intelligent about what is is over there. So after our singing and the prayer, please just sit, uh, be seated and I'll quickly go through what I want to share with you. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that we'll be clothed with your armour and that our lives will be hid in you. Help us, Lord, to live the Christ-like life and to uh, go forward in your strength, winning your battles. So bless us now, Lord, to this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some uh, leaflets. Sorry, yeah. It's just um, that Jonathan produces. The um, Great Controversy leaflets that are there for anybody that would like to take them on the table nearest to us. And so you're welcome to take these. They, Jonathan's doing a very good job with these going through the mail shots. And uh, so you're welcome to have these. Yeah. Now, quickly, I want to address some of the materials we have here. We decided to put out this Reformation History Library. By the way, there's about $3,000 worth of books there. And in the camp meeting series, we are selling this for $30 off, about £20 off. So instead of $129.95, we're selling it for $99.95. This is the time to purchase during camp meetings this year if you're interested in this CD. It has on some of the rare forms as well as some of the better known Reformation history books. I tell you our purpose, and by the way, we're going to put out another one before this year's out. Different set again. And we've got plans for a third one. Hasn't started yet, but we've got plans towards it. We realize that these Rare Reformation history books that tell the real heritage of Protestantism, which most Protestants are forgetting. You can't know your history and your heritage and still be an ecumenist, can you? And because we know the Jesuits and others are just destroying these books around the libraries of the world and wherever they can get their hands on them. What's the name of this town over here that's built on... What, what's the name of it? Yes, how far away is that from here? 20 minutes. I might get someone to run me. That wouldn't be open this afternoon, would it? Someone to run me there this afternoon. But in any case, 
They're going to those places too and trying to gather them up so that the Protestants will not have these. But if we put them in electronic format, it's going to preserve them. It's going to be almost impossible. And if eventually we get them on the web or something like that, then there'll be another effort to retain them and maybe some Protestants. Certainly, I believe some Protestants will have them. By the way, this has got an excellent search engine on it. Um, we paid $14,000 for support for inquiries on it, and they've only had four supports. That's a pretty good basis that they got. We won't do it that way next time because the search engine is so user-friendly that few people have had any problem with it whatsoever. And you can do all the cross-referencing, all the pick, picking up from any of the books, just like you could on the, uh, the Sister White, E.G., uh, um, Ellen G. White ROM, so the Spirit of Prophecy ROM. That's, that's a very valuable, for $100, basically, um, you can have that during the camp meeting time. Now, two books that go together. Spiritism in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I, if you haven't read that book, you don't realize just how Spiritism is just flooding the Seventh-day Adventist Church today. Spiritism. I got a tremendous shock back in September. Within the space of six days, I got two cutouts from newspapers. One was from the Washington Post, and the other one was from the Sholo, whatever it was, of these two young Seventh-day Adventist teenagers, both that were deep into spiritism. One was an Indian, an East Indian young lady, born in the United States, but of Indian parents. And for some unknown reason, they sent her back to India to get an experience and working with Mother Teresa last year. And she was there when Mother Teresa died. And that's why the Washington Post was interviewing her. She was now back in Tacoma Park. And it's specifically stated in the paper she was a Tacoma Park native, a Seventh-day Adventist. And uh, she said things like, uh, must have been devastating, but she, uh, the interviewer said when Mother Teresa died, yes, but it's all right, she's gone to a better place. Is that what Seventh-day Adventists say? Would you say that as a seventh? She was 16 years of age, this young lady. What kind of training had she had in a home? What kind of training had she had in a school? It's almost certain that she went to one of the Adventist schools there. That's just about all that you can go to in that little region. She may not have, but what did she learn at a church? And she told all these wonderful things about Mother Teresa. She'd come late for Mass. Late for Mass. What was she doing in Mass? And uh, that was a no-no, of course, from the Sisters of Charity. You had to be there on time. But she was sitting down, and apparently she sat just in front of Mother Teresa. This is just very shortly before Mother Teresa died. And I'm not here to say that she, Mother Teresa could be in heaven, for all I know. But... And Mother Teresa tapped her on the shoulder and said, it's all right, I've been late sometimes too. You know, that was the kind of incidents that she was recounting in this story. And then there was 
the 17-year-old girl from Sholo in eastern Arizona. That's up in the mountains. I preached there three times in that um, area. In fact, once in the church there. And she'd been in a serious motor accident, almost died, and she had one of these near-death experiences. And she went, of course, through the dark tunnel and saw the great light. And there was Jesus standing there. She gave a vivid description. She said he had dark hair and brown eyes. I wondered where, what that compared with Revelation's description of Christ. A little different description. And he put his loving arms and told her he loved her. And the angels were there, but the angels don't have wings. Well, I don't know what you read in the Bible about angels, but the angels I read about have wings. Some even have six wings. The seraphims. So I, I made the deduction from that that she really wasn't in heaven. And she saw these beautiful white tigers and she went on and on in this description. And she just wanted to stay there. It gave her such love in her heart. But then a friend came to her who had been killed in a car accident just three months earlier and said... It's not your time. You've got to go back to earth. And she said, I came back to earth with a fuss. She also talked about looking up and seeing her, her mangled body. Seventh-day Adventist, 17-year-old. Spiritism, the last deception of Satan. You think Seventh-day Adventists won't fall for that? Oh, that book is a tremendous warning. But... It goes much further than that. It looks at the subtle. Some of us here won't be deceived that way. Do you think Satan's got another plan for you? You'll find what that plan is. Sister White makes it very plain in that book, Spiritism in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. But I urge you to buy these two together. It is true, this one can be used for non-Adventists. In fact, you ought to use it there. Barry Champion said when he was up there at the, the health fair in Manchester, if he had a box of these, he'd have sold them so quickly because in the, there's so much mysticism around health today and the issue of death and that was so much in the air of every discussion. He said, I didn't take one of them over. He said, next time I go to health fair, I'm going to take a full box of them because people need this book. Russell and I have taken it up from an entirely, I think, unique way to try to capture people's attention. We look, for example, at the most beautiful woman either of us ever saw. I don't ever expect to see any woman as beautiful as this woman. It was when we were young men at the University of Sydney and I tell you, when that woman stepped on the campus, there was hardly an eye, male or female, that were not awed by that girl. You wonder what that has to do with the mystery of death. The engineering students quickly took hold of her and put her up as Miss Engineering in the Miss University contests, in the university contest, 
Of course, it was no use anyone else putting up any other candidates, though they did. It was a foregone conclusion what the outcome was going to be. None of the other girls thought they had a chance and they were right. And then she went to the Miss New South Wales. We didn't have to guess. We didn't see the other candidates, but we knew who was going to win that. Then she went to the Miss Australia, and then she went to the Miss Universe, and we knew that there was no other girl around this planet that could come within cooey of the looks of this girl. And, of course, she won the Miss Universe contest. She was actually of white Russian descent. She was, she'd grown up in China and then when the communists had hit their family left, came to Australia. I won't tell you the rest of the story, but um, that's an interesting one. We take it up in this book, The Mystery of Death. We go back to Robbie Burns, you Scotsman. And we look at the mystery of death in relationship to Robbie Burns, the Scottish poet. I suppose some of you studied his poetry we did at Sydney University. My love is like the red, red rose that sweetly blooms in spring. When I come over here to Britain and I see all the roses, it reminds me of Robbie Burns. We look up also, we take up Bertram Russell and what he had to say about death. You know, you've got to get ways of presenting these themes that will capture the minds of secular readers and then put the Word of God beside it. Those two are a kind of a companion this one for these two for Adventists, this one alone for non-Adventists. I, uh, it'd be worth. Remember, a woman bought a whole box of them to give out to non-Adventists. These two go together. Swarming independence. Why are there so many self-supporting work? Even people that come to these meetings often think that self-supporting work is some kind of a, a lower-level ministry than denominational or conference work. I'm here to tell you that this book proves beyond any doubt that as far as Sister White was concerned, it was probably going to be more the self-supporting work than the denominational work that was going to finish the work of God. And also that they were equally God-ordained. It took us a long time to decide to put this book out. You know, Sister White had talked about silence on the tithe issue. But... Over and over again, I was reading in our denominational publications how wicked it was for these independents to be robbing the church of tithe. Now, Sister White never called the conference work the, the church work. She called the conference work and the self-supporting work, the regular lines and the irregular lines. She said, if we're not going to be able to finish with the regular lines, we've got to finish with the irregular lines. I believe that no one could read through that book and not be absolutely convinced that God ordained all his faithful workers to receive tithe. We went back. 
I, I res- it's amazing how books come into your hands. A book came into my hand called The Supremacy of Rome. Oh, sorry, The Supremacy of Peter. And that was written by um, M.E. Kellogg, apparently a relation of John Harvey Kellogg, published by the Review and Herald in 1898, 100 years ago to this year. And I tell you, that man saw the difference between the Roman Catholic concept of the storehouse and the New Testament concept of the storehouse. And that led me to an in-depth study of the New Testament and tithe. I hadn't even thought of doing it. I hadn't found anyone else that had done it. And we found what Sister White said when Kellogg said, I'm not sending another center tithe to the general conference I'm going to keep all the tithe that comes from the workers here in the Battle Creek Sanitarium and I'm going to send out my own medical missionary workers and I'm going to pay them from tithe directly it's amazing what Sister Wright wrote in response to that and what she wrote to, um, to Olson the general conference president Uriah Smith over their stand on the issues and what she wrote about the Southern Missionary Society and what she wrote about Madison, I tell you, that is a, an invaluable book, not only for yourself. You need to get it to the wavering or the uninformed or, or the people that feel that they've, there's only one place to place their tithes and offerings. Read what God says. Find out the issues. Well, there's many more books there, but um, we'll have a break. What time do we come back? Yeah, we need to. Quarter minutes. Yeah. Quarter.